The following podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. The Beach Ball by Charles Kaufman, Try by Todd Zuniga, and Feedback from the Committee by Matthew Petty. The Beach Ball, written and read by Charles Kaufman. Listening time, 6 minutes, 39 seconds. Robert's life wasn't so bad. There was a marriage of 20 years, a son in college, a respectable career, a mortgage-free house near the coast with just enough land to keep the neighbors at arm's length, two stray cats taken in, a golden retriever always happy to lick his hand. Life was not meant to be this easy. As he lowered himself over the edge of the pier, he noticed four cormorants sunning themselves on the nearby pylons. One twisted its long neck and turned an eye on him. Another opened its wings, ready to take flight. Robert slid into the nylon mesh seat and pushed his kayak into the harbor. There was scarcely a breath of wind. The tip of the kayak cut into the smooth water of the bay, piercing the wake of a passing lobster boat. As usual, he waved to the lobsterman, who, despite a working man's indifference to pleasure craft, returned the greeting. Robert dug in with his paddle and made swift headway toward a chain of remote islands. This was the ritual, sprint out along the islands and back again, one hour each way. A smattering of turns shot across the water, a turmoil of tiny wings. As he paddled, he felt an easy freedom, as if he were escaping, though to all appearances he had nothing to escape from. Motion of craft and water was enticing. Following the inside edge of the bay, he was safely out of the way of fast-moving boats. He wasn't interested in spilling into the frigid seawater, wetsuit and life jacket were too confining to wear. The first island held the ruins of a Civil War fortress, jumbled blocks of granite around an old parade ground, a broken tower offering a good view of the bay. There were several figures standing on top of the tower. Robert waved, and someone fluttered a red scarf in return. Everyone was bound to each other by the magical surroundings, even strangers. He continued to the next island, a long, narrow ridge covered by haggard-looking spruce. The tops of the trees were stripped bare of needles and bark by winter gales, bent tips pointing away from the predominant winds as if by force of persuasion. There were wild blueberries on the island, and raspberries. He passed a rock ledge, the third island, and came to a fourth where a windowless stone hut could be seen. Robert had spent nights there with his son, David. Each summer they volunteered for island cleanup. They'd find beer cans, cigarette butts, food wrappers, human excrement left behind by those uninterested in the natural alchemy Robert felt on the bay. This last island marked the far end of his workout. Here the bay opened into the North Atlantic. He still found the site breathtaking even after many years. Today he was aware of a curious urge to go on. The ocean was smooth as glass. In the distance, the deep blue of the water met the dark blue of the sky. Why not? Just to test things, 
just to see what it felt like, get himself close to the overwhelming immensity. No chance of a storm, easy enough to turn around. For a while he paddled straight out, the islands behind him. He felt both excitement and apprehension. This was how it happened, wasn't it? Someone going up into the mountain wilderness in winter and losing himself, an expert climber, a seasoned helmsman missing from a drifting sailboat. Such things couldn't be explained away as recklessness. Robert stopped, floated on the water. What would it be like? Let the ocean currents take him. He let the thought drift away. He spotted something, a lobster buoy perhaps, and paddled over to find a beach ball with red, yellow, and blue stripes. Robert remembered a time when his son, David, was about two, and they were playing a gentle, slow-motion version of soccer with a beach ball on a tiny bit of sand. Robert had kicked the ball toward the water by mistake, and the wind captured it, pushing it into the surf, carrying it further and further out. David had burst into a panic of tears, as if part of him were being blown out to sea, irretrievable. Ba, 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 he stuttered urgently in the heart-wrenching voice of a two-year-old who hadn't yet learned to guard his emotions from simple losses. Robert wanted to explain that it was only a cheap, inflatable ball. They could buy another. David wouldn't be comforted. Simple losses. Children are so much closer to life's beginnings, they must have a keener sense of the endings. Funny, Robert mused, because he had never really gotten over his own lingering fears of simple losses, a subtle yet persistent residue of despair accumulating inside him over the years, a feeling of hopelessness pushed to the back of his mind. Robert took the ball from the water and hugged it against his chest. There was no other place for it, as if it were a child. He stretched his legs over the plastic bow and leaned back against the seat. The deep blue sky, the kayak rocking gently in the low swell, offered a certain comfort. He felt an invitation to sleep. He was awakened, had it been minutes, by the cries of several gulls riding a billow of wind along the surface of the water. The sky was somewhat paler than before, the air had a chill. He looked for the coastline, but saw only low lines of advancing fog. Robert stuffed the ball under two crossing elastic straps on the bow. Life wasn't meant to be easy, no, sir. He began paddling slowly, not having any idea which direction to choose, the tricolor ball leading him on like an errant beacon. He wanted to get home, call David, tell him that it wasn't what he thought, it wasn't what they all would be thinking. This was an accident. His father had recklessly, irredeemably, he feared, lost his way. Charles Kaufman plays historic replica bassoons in various orchestras. An additional story, Some Things I Forgot to Tell You, will appear online in the Salt River Review in June 2006. Try, written and read by Todd Zuniga. Listening time, 5 minutes, 19 seconds. While preparing a surprise dinner for my girlfriend, Aaliyah, I filled the living room with lit candles. 
The room's flat surfaces are layered with light that play on the walls in a fiery swim. I'm in the kitchen, tilting asparagus spears against a pillow of tomato basil risotto when an ambitious candle catches hold of a curtain. The living room glows like a flamethrower's spread. It all happens so quickly, I'm helpless to contain it. By the time firemen arrive and drench her home, I've burned down half of Aaliyah's house and killed her cat. To assuage Aaliyah's grief over her lost feline, I drop by her temporary housing complex and deliver her a new cat. It's a baby kitten that fits in the palm of my hand. She names it Derek Jeter. I tell her I think it's a girl. She nods and renames it Luther Vandross. Luther's eyes are sleepy. She moves only a little at a time. Aaliyah asks me where I got her and I say, from an adoption center. She holds Luther to her chest and hugs me around the neck with her free arm. She says she forgives me. That first day, Aaliyah calls me from the kitchen to the bathroom to show me Luther asleep in the sink, from the bedroom to the living room to show me Luther's black tongue poking from between her kitten lips. That night, the kitten sleeps pressed into the L of Aaliyah's neck and shoulder. On the fourth day, Aaliyah calls and says, Come over, I want you to see something. I hurry over, expecting Luther to be nestled in a cookie jar. Dodging my hello kiss, Aaliyah says, I want to see the papers for Luther. Look at this. She bends over to show me a bald spot formed on her head, a dime-sized oval of hair missing. I tell her, there are no papers. There must be, and if you don't have them, call the adoption center. She tells me it's ringworm. The cat has it, and now I do too. I tell her Luther came from a man on a street corner, from a box of six kittens. Hearing her name, Luther strolls over, wraps around Aaliyah's denimed ankle. Small diamonds of hair are pitifully absent from Luther's tail, side, and neck. Aaliyah looks at me blankly while scratching her bald spot. I pull out my cell phone, call 411. I ask for the nearest veterinarian. Once her bald spot is filled with bristles and Luther is healthy, I bring Aaliyah a dozen roses. We kiss and we clutch and we grab. She stops before we go too far, says she hasn't showered yet today. While she's in the bathroom, I pull a Ziploc full of red rose petals from my bag, sprinkle them onto her white bedspread. The shock red against white is a perfect contrast. Out of the shower, her body is slick with lotion. When she enters her bedroom, she gasps with surprise. We make love on the bed atop plucked roses, surrounded by their powdery scent. Luther pounces on stray petals that helicopter to the floor. I'm shocked awake from my post-coital nap. Aaliyah's shouting, get up, get up! But I don't get up once awake. Instead, I just look at her with silent surprise. She pulls at the bedspread, sweeping the remaining petals away, then pulls again, sweeps, then pulls. It's my grandmother, she says, my dead grandmother Lucy's. Luther meows. I sit up, only the cover sheet over me. It's a miracle the bedspread survived the fire, but now it's ruined, Aaliyah says. The petals stained it. Look, look, she says. I look. The bedspread is soiled with blurry pink skid marks. I say that I don't know what to say, and she says again, it was my grandmother's. Now what? A day after the rose petal stain, Aaliyah Phone says again, she forgives me. I understand, she says, you were trying to be sweet. I don't mean it when I tell her, maybe I should steer clear of you for a while, for your own good. But she does mean it when she says, maybe that's a good idea. I wait idly for Aaliyah to change her mind, but she doesn't call. To cosmically regain her affection, I play Gran Turismo 4 using her name as my user profile, change my Gmail password to Aaliyah Aaliyah, write her name mid-shower on my hand with Liquid Dove. One night, I go to her burnt home, tear apart an unused notebook, fold up dozens of different types of paper airplanes. On the wings, I write short love letters, draw stick pictures of us together. I launch the planes into the brittle char. 
It's two hours before I'm embarrassed by the lame theatricality of my actions and depressed by how much I'm enjoying it. I stomp through the wreckage, retrieve the airplanes. I bundle them into a clump and throw them into an open sewer. Back home and filthy with ash, I call Aaliyah and ask her to meet me out for dinner. She asks where and I tell her the name of a sushi place downtown. You know, I've never eaten sushi, she says. A burst of adrenaline panic splashes through me. I imagine the raw fish erupting her body into a marvel of blisters. But before I have time to call the whole thing off, she says, But why not? At the restaurant, she says she doesn't know. Can I order for her? I am nervous and reluctant, but order safely. Two pieces of salmon, two tuna, two yellowtail, and a California roll. We talk, and the talk is easy and good. She tells me Luther is growing, that he's gotten big fast. I'm certain she's moved on. Then she says, I think maybe Luther even misses you. Right then, the food comes out on rectangles of wood. Aaliyah mimics me, pours soy sauce into a ceramic dish. She bypasses the wasabi and manages the chopsticks with her right hand. Carefully, she lifts a piece of tuna to her mouth. Her lips close around it, and I hold my breath. Todd Zuniga is the founding editor of Opium Magazine. Dot com and dot print. A 2005 Pushcart Prize nominee, his work has appeared in Sweet Fancy Moses, Small Spiral Notebook, Online at McSweeney's and LMA, and is forthcoming in Monkey Bicycle. Feedback from the committee. Written and read by Matthew Petty. Listening time, 12 minutes, 45 seconds. Feedback from the Committee by Matthew Petty For one thing, you are not Ted Williams taking his three ninety nine batting average into the last day of the season, that rainy, cold Sunday doubleheader at Old Scheib Park in Philadelphia. You can't with any credibility claim to have personally fashioned his bat out of the finest piece of hand-picked ash. You didn't clean his uniform, and you weren't the manager who told him to sit it out to assure that the statistical 400 would remain intact. In other words, you had nothing to do with Ted Williams hitting 406 in 1941. Neither did you have a hand in Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak that same year. We could go on and on about baseball alone. No one ever nicknamed you Kid or Splendid Splinter or Terrible Ted. And even if your given name were Joseph, no one would think of nicknaming you Jolton Joe. Ditto, Hammer and Hank. You're not even Stan the Man. Neither are you, as it turns out. Henry Miller strolling the evening fog of Paris in the 30s, rhapsodizing about encounters with unkempt and overweight prostitutes, gaslit street lamps lending your words a spectral luminescence. Nor are you John the Baptist. You don't possess the foresight it requires to herald the coming, and no one wants your head on a platter. What we're trying to say is that you've never had a sex change operation or been featured on the cover of Wheaties. You haven't achieved nirvana. You seldom, if ever, walk barefoot on hot coals, you weren't baptized by fire, and you haven't been to hell and back. You've never committed treason, and you aren't listed as missing in action. In fact, you've taken part in few endeavors that technically qualify as action. For instance, you were never involved in a foreign intrigue. You've never miraculously awakened after six months in a coma. You were neither a child prodigy nor a late bloomer. No one's ever referred to you as a world beater. You didn't make your first million before the age of 30. 
You haven't walked a tightrope under the big top. You've never lost a leg to a weak pressure. You're no alchemist, no John Kennedy, no sole survivor. You're the king of no hill, the top of no heap, the cream of no crop, the leader of no pack. When you die, no one will refer to your children as heirs or heiresses. Because you have no mob connections and aren't in the witness protection program, no one has ever desperately needed your testimony, and no attempts have been made on your life by scar-faced gentlemen concealing handguns in dark suits. We're not necessarily out to shame you or to pose challenges to your self-esteem, but you're nowhere near one in a million. By our calculations, you're one in about 37.5. You haven't given a single history-making speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. You've never exhumed a grave or been a guest at the Playboy Mansion, nor have you sold your story to the National Enquirer. We'll also briefly mention that you haven't had any experience exploring volcanoes or deactivating bombs. Making allowances for the fact that you're not a certified genius, we only wish to save you some trouble and embarrassment when we suggest it would be poor judgment for you to wear a Speedo. And while it may be hard to wrap your mind completely around this, you're neither a man's man nor a lady's man. The following is a partial list of major world cities where a statue of you is yet to be erected. Rome, Paris, New York, London, Prague, Moscow, Lisbon, Helsinki, Rio de Janeiro. It's already too late for Babylon and Constantinople. Or consider the things you're not that begin with the letter M. Mogul, magistrate, maven, merman, mutineer, maharaja, minister, matador, monster. As far as we've been able to determine, You've not made an assassination attempt or written a best-selling novel from behind bars. You haven't been born again, and you've never channeled a famous historical figure. You've never been KO'd in the fourth. You've never eaten peyote, and you've never been struck by lightning. Your state of consciousness has not been altered in any significant way. You are not ahead of your time. You are smack dab in the middle of your time. You've invented nothing and you've never coined a phrase. You remain unlisted in who's who, Ripley's Believe It or Not, and the Guinness Book of World Records, and there are no fables, legends, or myths in which you are the featured hero. You haven't survived a shark attack. On the bright side, you've managed thus far to escape detection by people in the know. No one is observing you closely, and no one has blown your cover, as you have no cover to blow. Few people would describe your looks as killer. Today, known as surfaced, who will testify that you rocked his or her world. Has nothing inspired you? You've never drilled a buzzer beater, struck oil, won the lottery, hit paydirt, found the mother load, discovered an aboriginal society in New Zealand, cracked a safe. You've entered neither hornet's nest nor den of iniquity. You've never completely gone with your gut. Nor are you a man particularly of substance. When, pray tell, has the spirit moved you? There are no eyewitness reports of your speaking in tongues or of the mountain coming to you. You're not the kind of guy who would refuse to go gentle into that good night. You've topped no charts with a number one hit. You haven't made a farewell tour or hit the comeback trail, never rounded the corner, reversed the tide, or turned the tables. You've never led a band of ill-fed but well-trained guerrillas against a corrupt Central American government. You are not, and this is a bitter disappointment, Muhammad Ali. Our overall feeling is that you're not completely hopeless. 
It's just that with your face glaringly absent from Mount Rushmore, you have very little to hang your hat on at cocktail parties. In fact, you should probably avoid cocktail parties when qualities and experiences you don't possess are likely to pop up like those amusement park gophers you can't quite put a mallet to. For this reason, we strongly suggest you never bandy things about before first checking credentials. A partial list of prizes, honors, and awards you haven't won. Nobel, Oscar, Emmy, Tony, Grammy, Pulitzer, Knighthood, Congressional Medal of Honor, Stanley Cup. A partial list of titles you haven't yet attained. Emperor, Ruler, Lord, Duke, Earl, Pasha, Chief, President, Prime Minister, Chairman and CEO, Tsar, Sultan, Pope, Grand Poobah, King. You are neither Charles Manson nor a member of his family. You are a world-renowned expert in nothing. News agencies don't seek you out to ask your opinion when there's a late-breaking story with wide-ranging implications. Meanwhile, there are many, many, many beautiful women and men you haven't slept with. You've searched for the true meaning of nothing in Tibet. You haven't had your nose broken in a barroom brawl. You were never the major player in a corporate buyout, although this is your birthright as an American. Furthermore, there are no secret missions to secure the safety of MIAs in Vietnam on your current schedule. Nor has the CIA cooked up a ploy to get rid of you because you happen to know too much. The CIA would never need a complicated plan to kill you. They could just walk up to you at any time on your way to work, say, and kill you with ease. Some of us have openly wondered what the meaning of your existence has been. You've never saved someone's life by jumping into an icy river or charging into a burning house. Where were you when those opportunities arose? Consider the well-documented fact that you've never stayed up all night eating donuts while conducting a stakeout or been involved in a high-speed chase. You are not a member of the Mile High Club, Mensa, the Polar Bear Club, or the Black Panthers. You're not a Fortune 500 company. You've never had an acronym or been quoted in the Wall Street Journal. You've never had your dirty laundry aired or your name besmirched on the front pages of newspapers around the country. You didn't receive a huge signing bonus. You've never challenged someone to a duel or run the gate at a toll booth without paying. You haven't blackmailed anyone or extorted millions and funneled it into his private Swiss bank account. You've pillaged and plundered no one. You've never made a suicide pact or taken a lie detector test. To date, no stamp or coin has been minted that bears your profile. A made-for-TV movie based on your life has not been scripted. It might be wise to get started on some of these things pretty soon. About your heritage, you were not with Custer at his last stand or with Sherman during his march to the sea. You don't remember the Alamo. You've never led a union strike or gotten blacklisted. You've never organized a sit-in or chained yourself to a tree. Some examples of Americans you're not. Horatio Alger, Johnny Appleseed, Daniel Boone, Paul Bunyan, Davy Crockett, Wyatt Earp, Ernest Hemingway, John Henry, Alger Hiss, John Paul Jones, Martin Luther King Jr., Steve McQueen, Richard Nixon, Elvis Presley, Uncle Sam, Yosemite Sam, Malcolm X, Frank Zappa. After you left the room, a few of the evaluators came down hard on the fact that you've never tamed lions or wrestled an alligator. Also, you haven't been buried alive. You might consider dying for a cause or two. You've never sky nor scuba dived, never delivered a soliloquy, 
You didn't build the house you live in with your own two hands. Although you can muster a degree of assertiveness when you have to, one wouldn't exactly call you a warrior. Nor would crusader, hitman, champion, terminator, or gladiator be an appropriate appellation for you. No one calls you ace. There is no circle in which you would be considered a keeper of the flame or a passer of the torch, and you have yet to explore the dark underbelly or seamy underside of anything. You've never mounted a threat or engineered an upset. You haven't even cheated death. Perhaps you've just forgotten to excel because at present you dominate nothing. You're neither the first line of defense nor the last good hope. You're not the final word on anything. You don't understand Einstein's theory of relativity, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Pascal's pensées, or Joyce's Ulysses. And Wittgenstein confuses the heck out of you. No one on the committee was willing to overlook the fact that you haven't climbed Mount Everest, swum the English Channel, or flown solo across the Atlantic. And one small step for man was apparently too daunting because you've never set foot on the moon either. You've never sung in the Vienna Boys Choir. You're on no one's short list, and you're neither contending for the belt nor in line for the throne. No one claims you as having been a formative influence on their work, nor have you ever been bound and whipped by a leather-clad dominatrix. It appears, in other words, as though you've left quite a few stones unturned. Someone suggested trying to end on a positive note, even if it wasn't easy. To your credit, you have never burst someone's bubble or taken them down a few notches. And though no one has ever called you maestro, though you're not a virtuoso performer on any musical instrument, you appear to be one of those rare men who keep their eyes open during certain procreative activities, and many of the female judges found this laudable. You've stepped on no one's toes, backed no one into a corner, called no one's bluff, kicked no one's ass, made no one's skin crawl. Not once in your entire life have you waved goodbye from a helicopter as you left the grounds of the White House in disgrace. When all is said and done, you do at least have a clue. You might try hoisting those aspirations a little higher. Maybe watch a little TV if you're strapped for ideas. No one here thinks you're not still capable of scratching and clawing your way to the top. This is America. It's never too late. Matthew Petty teaches creative writing and literature at the University of the District of Columbia. Short stories of his have appeared in Puerto del Sol, Real, Salt Hill, Tema, Stray Dog, and other magazines. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>